Welcome, welcome, welcome to Thirst Knowledge Podcast, episode 60. I'm James Evers. I'm Justin. And I'm Seth Tardiff. And today on the episode, it's another History of Beer, part eight, where we cover 1933 to 1983. That is correct, and a lot happened during this time period. Now, there are three very specific things that happened, and that was the rise of big beer, the invention of cans, and the beginnings of craft beer. Goddamn. Yes. So enjoy this episode and make sure you stick around for the QC at the end of the episode, because that's a fun part. So join us as we go down the rabbit hole with handcrafted homebrews, legalized light loggers, and capitalistic cervezas in the history of beer. I'm actually sure I gotta go get another beer because now I don't have one on deck because that one's already open. Oh my god, dude. <laughs> just this is just gonna go on and on and on. Hold on, guys. What's that? Fucking, fucking shit. Taco Bell. <laughs> god damn it. No. Oh my god. Look at that. I can move this. Moving right. the whole table over there. <sighs> History of beer, fellas. History of beer part eight. God damn. Do you remember when we did part one? That was our first episode, right? It was. Mm. Part one. Yep. Now we're on part eight. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. How far we have gone? We started in negative, negative time. Negative time. <laughs> I mean, basically, Before right? Before Jesus. <laughs> 10,000 BC, and now we're at 1933. Damn, we're almost over. Yeah. yeah. Is the next episode the last one? No. Two more? Two more of the timeline basically yeah and then we have to start going into the future and then we have to start predicting <laughs> the, the, Part yeah. 11. <laughs> then we will start predicting the future i'm gonna beer. start writing a book about it <laughs> in 2032 but dissolves <laughs> tesla is that elon musk now owns all the beer <laughs> space it's gonna be mars beer man first brewery on mars mars beer (laughs) so today we're covering the period from 1933 to 1983 and there's essentially three main parts of this episode Mm. there's the rise of big beer there's the invention of cans and the beginnings of craft beer so we're going to end on the beginnings of craft beer Because that's a great part to end, but we're going to begin with our featured beer of today's episode, which is a part of that rise of, or the beginning of craft beer. And that beer is a big one. It's Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which Ham just poured and is about to foam (laughs) out all over the place. It's good. I've had three already. (laughs) (laughs) So Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is a historic beer. It was first brewed in 1980. And I believe it to be the archetype for pale ales to come and is essentially the precursor to the IPA movement that we've been experiencing now in the United States for the past, I don't know, 10-ish years or so. Um, Very easy drinking, too. Goes down smooth as eggs. <laughs> what's it? What's the alcohol on this? 
Uh, I, I get, off memory, I want to say it's like five point six percent. Really? I see. I could. I could think I could do my beer mile with this. It, it is, is five point six percent. Five point six. Yeah. See, I'm. Com- I think I could chug these comfortably. I don't think you can, man. Quick question, <clears throat> unrelated to this, but beer mile wise, do we have to have the same beer? No. Can you I have like four own. different beers? Ooh, oh, that we would have to look into. Okay. Sorry. Side note. But I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, Sierra Nevada, as we'll get to, was founded in 1979 by Ken Grossman and Paul Camusi in Chico, California. Now, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which is a fantastic beer and is one of the first few craft beers that I drank when I was yep. first getting into craft beer, <clears throat> absolutely, um, is many people's, uh, at least at the time, a lot of people's introduction to hoppy beer the pale ale style and when it was first brewed the cascade hop because as we'll get to the cascade hop was first developed during this time period that we're covering now cascade would go on to become pretty much the most widely used hop in all of craft beer which is crazy and i think you know sierra nevada pale ale is definitely a big part of that you know popularizing that hop but I mean, there's there's so many things um, to be said about Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. It's it's basically I, I I look at that beer as pretty much being the big beginning of craft beer. Absolutely, for sure. Which is wild that it came out in 1980. Yeah, and it's still available to this day. Forty years. Yeah. No. Yes. Forty years. Yeah. 40 years over 40 years old now and it's pretty i think the recipe that's currently being brewed is pretty close to the original i don't think it's changed much over the years one of my favorite beers right now is by sierra nevada which is the little hazy thing oh yeah 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 yeah. i mean anybody who is exposed to craft beer who enjoys the culture of craft craft beer and enjoys a good craft beer they know that that green bottle that that Green yep. Label Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. You know it. You've probably yeah. had it. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's super widely available. It's it's crazy. Oh, it's so good. Very solid beer that we will be enjoying during this episode. Yep. So, to get on to the episode. <clears throat> Prohibition. <clears throat> Boom. Full sit act. Bam. It's done. 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 Over. Let's drink. And if you don't know that it's over, you should go back and listen to our Prohibition episodes because they are awesome. Solid. So now we're in 1933 and Prohibition's over. So this is interesting. After Prohibition is lifted, the number of breweries opened by the end of the year reaches 331. Okay? So in 1933, bam, Prohibition's done. Boom, you got 331 breweries. Now, I would have to imagine that a big part of those were breweries that still existed, but they switched gears, like we talked about in Prohibition, how they started doing other stuff. Right. So as soon as Prohibition lifted, they're like, all right, turn everything back on. We're fucking doing beer now. You know? So and, and there had to have been some talk like Prohibition is about to end. You know, there's talk le- like uh, legislator, legislator, <laughs> legislation. <laughs> so they there knew, must have they been. They knew it was coming. Yeah, it so was they're, coming. They're, so they're, they're they got probably a heads getting up. ready. Getting they got ready. A heads up. Yeah. Because there's like booze everywhere. Remember the pictures and posters? Prohibition's over, and well, there's people in the streets like fucking with beers. Oh and yeah. Shit. Well, they were still. I mean, underground. They were. There were still breweries and people yeah. that were making stuff. You know, illegally. 
And you could still buy alcohol. They had stuff stowed away in like just in not just in case, but in anticipation for lifting the laws, right? I think we talked about that. Yeah. yeah. They got ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So continuing on, in 1934, we have the American Society of Brewing Chemists, which is founded in Chicago. Members include Anheuser-Busch, Pabst, Schaefer, as well as various grain processors, and the Siebel Institute, which is a brewing science organization. Now, this is important because now we've got serious science going into beers, Okay, so obviously we've talked about in previous episodes how like inventions of hydrometers and and different things, different science tools that were made to measure um, the different parts of beer along the way, yeah, and all that jazz. But now that we've got actual organizations that are looking into okay, how can we improve quality control? What are off flavors in beer? Which is something that Siebel will become known for in today's brewing world which is basically you can get these off flavor kits that teach you about what off flavors are in beer and how to detect them and get brewers used to being able to identify flaws in their beer and then get to the root cause of them so now because breweries are about to get really really big and you need to be able to brew consistent quality beer over and over again, you're going to have all these large organizations of science that are going into being able to make quality of beers great, which is the reason or part of the reason why a lot of these big beer companies survive is because you can go anywhere in the world and get a Bud Light and it's going to taste like a Bud Light, right? which is an amazing feat, by the way. Like... Beer is a living thing, or at least it was at one point. And to be able to control for all those factors, it is insane. Like different grain crop years in the process of which they're malted, and then different hop crop years, and then yeast in and of itself. Like they've got a mind of their own, man. Like you really, you can set everything perfectly, and sometimes they're going to go out of whack. Sometimes beer won't taste. Like you could do everything the same way, use all the same ingredients, use all the same process, and it will taste differently. So they have all these checks in place, all these quality things to make sure that their beer is tasting the best it can, which I think is really the most impressive feat of big beer. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I, I can I can definitely get behind that. Um, but as far as like the actual product they're making and what it tastes like, that's another story. But it is a feat that they can make the same beer over and over again, you know? And like we mentioned Sierra Nevada earlier, they're actually a company that's really big into quality as they, you know, should be. They're a huge craft brewery. Now, they're obviously no longer a microbrewery. They're a huge craft brewery. And I'm drinking the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale right now. And it's exactly how I remember a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale tasting. It's amazing, you know? It's good. So we continue on in time and we get to 1941 and the U S hits its peak number of breweries post prohibition at 857. This number will see a steady decline until the 1980s and not be seen again until the mid 1990s for what? Okay. So in 1941, yeah, that's, 
the peak number of breweries in the United States post-prohibition. Post. 857. Okay. So it looks like, oh man, we're getting all this diversity. We have all these new breweries that are popping up. 857. Well, nope. It goes in the exact opposite direction. Starts fucking going down. Starts going down until the 1980s, and we'll get to that number at the end. And then that number won't be reached again until the mid-1990s, which we'll cover, obviously, in the next episode. So this part, the, the rise of big beer, there's not too many crazy things that happen as far as, oh, there's all these new beers happen. There are some pretty significant beers that get created during this period. But for the most part, it's just these big breweries becoming bigger, buying other breweries, buying other properties, like focusing on now we're getting into the time of television and commercials and marketing and advertising and all that stuff. So it's just feeding the machine that will be big beer. Um, But before we get into any of that kind of stuff, I've got an interesting story about Coors. Coors. Okay. So in 1960, February 9th to be exact, Adolf Coors III, who's the grandson of the founder of Coors, is kidnapped and murdered on his way to work in Golden, Colorado. Whoa. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So the guy that did it was this guy, Joseph Corbett Jr., and he tried to get $500,000 in ransom. That's a lot of money back then. That is a shitload of money. That's half a million dollars in 1960, dude. Yeah. But this is the guy who's- I don't know. I mean, when we're talking $1,000 bills- Right. That's true. Mission times. (laughs) That's true. Ain't that much money. Mm. So this is fucking crazy, dude. So on February 9th, this guy gets murdered, and Joseph Corbett is trying to get half a million dollars in ransom. Problem is, in September- they find Adolf Coors in a garbage dump. So it took them from February to September. Damn. So this guy was like... What, you have him like locked up and feeding him and shit? No, he probably murdered him like right and then when it Probably happened. right away. But put him who in doesn't a, change a dumpster that long? It, well, I mean, it, in a garbage dump. He probably oh, like... Oh, garbage dump. Yeah. I thought a dumpster. Yeah. Okay. I was <laughs> yeah. like, some lazy motherfuckers, man. <laughs> what, is he just skin and bones by then? So they finally captured Corbett in Vancouver, Canada, and sentenced him to life. Yeah. And he paroled in 1978. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, crazy dude. Fuck? So what happened after this is now Coors um, had to initiate polygraph tests for their employees. At least at the time, they were doing like, oh shit, like they're after us. Like we can't, you know. Which polygraph tests are totally fucking fallible oh yeah like, but in the 1960s dude yeah i like, suppose they i mean they were definitely fallible then but you know people are like oh we've got lie detectors They're yeah real, yeah, yeah but that was really that was the most like interesting tidbit of information that i found about big beer during this time period there's actually that's a lie i've got two more <laughs> and so we'll continue on with those other two in 1961 there's 140 independent breweries in the U.S., 230 total. So that's just a benchmark. Our numbers are dropping of the Dude, amount of like breweries. considerably. 800 yeah. to 230. Yeah, and that's in a period of... 20 years. You know, yeah, 20 years, exactly. So now we're coming up into the 60s, and this is a guy that I'd never heard of, surprisingly, but his name is Joseph Oades. 
and he helped the Rheingold breweries in Brooklyn develop the first light beer. First light beer. Oh. Now, is a light beer low calorie or light tasting? Both. Like less hoppy? Both. And okay. less alcohol. Yeah. Less alcohol? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so a light beer, it's less calories, less alcohol. And when was this? This was in 1967. Okay. So Joseph Oades helps Rheingold Breweries in Brooklyn develop the first light beer, and it ends up flopping after being marketed towards diabetics. <laughs> <laughs> because it was marketed towards diabetics, and there was like a cancel culture about it? I well, I don't. I, mean, think, I don't know about a cancel culture. But. I don't think there was a cancel culture. I just think it was a bad marketing strategy, right? Like they didn't think that they could market light beer towards your normal beer drinker at that point because they're like less alcohol. Ew. Well, it's not necess- It's a little bit less alcohol. You know what I mean? If you think of like a Bud a Bud Light compared to a Bud Weiser, right. it's maybe like a half a percent difference lower. Yeah. You know what I mean? But. It, it it's easier drinking it's lower in calories those things didn't matter then matter th- as much then right so this guy joseph oades would become known as the father of light beer and also found the center for brewing studies in san francisco and when we get to our rise of craft beer portion of this episode he goes on to do some other crazy shit and this is why i can't believe that i never heard of him so the next part I've got in 1973, this ties into Mr. O80s. So Philip Morris buys Miller Brewing Company in 1973 for 243 million, 243 million dollars. Damn! In 1973. 1973, <sighs> and they introduce Miller Light with the tagline "Great Taste, Less Filling," and it became the first successful light beer. And guess what? It used the original formula that Oades developed for Rheingold Breweries. Damn. So just because of a different branding and marketing, exactly. It That's a good marketing. And like oh, six yeah. years later. Because instead, you know? it's not like low calorie, this and that. It's like, now you can drink more of it because oh, yeah. you're not as full. Mm-hmm. You know? And then you can drink more. That means you can get more drunk. And, you know, you don't feel full. So you would have to imagine that in 1967, when Oades is helping Rheingold Breweries in Brooklyn, they weren't quite as big as Philip Morris buying Miller, you know? So they're like, oh, this is a really good idea. Like, we can do something with this. And they fucking did because Miller Lite would sell 24.2 million barrels in 1977 and take Miller from number seven big brewery to number two behind Anheuser-Busch. Wow. Damn. Yeah. What do you got? You got something crazy? I got something crazy. I mean, I, I've got a couple. I want to go back a few years just for so, a couple of nuggets. But yeah. So essentially, the, the way that I'm outlining this is, as I said in the beginning of the episode, we're taking it in three sections. So we're going to, in our normal history of beer episodes, we kind of skip, we go through time in chronological order. In this episode, there's, these three stories that we're telling essentially the rise of craft beer cans and the beginning of craft brewing. It's true. So yeah. it was when I was putting together this episode and I was going in chronological order, it became kind of disjointed sure. because you're trying to tell three stories at the t- same time. Right. So rather I would, I've been breaking this, the chunks into three different chunks. So we'll be going back in time in this episode when we reach each part. Cool. So essentially 
1973, that's kind of the last big thing that I have for the rise of craft beer, at least in terms of big innovations being made in that industry. What about Justin? Do you have anything about 40s? No, I don't. Have no, forty Nin- ounce beers, nineteen sixty four old English, and the start of forties. Oh fuck really? yeah! Really? Yeah. Oh, I did not 40 see ounce that. Beers. Dude. That's wild. We should do a side gig: the story of forties. <laughs> <laughs> and now, I would imagine that those were originally released in bottles, right? Yeah, forty ounce glass bottles. Yeah, they're called yeah. stubbies. Stubbies. Yeah, because oh. you know the short little neck. Yeah, yeah kind of yeah. like the like that. They, like uh, the Coors Banquet? Coors Banquet. Or, they're, they're called Stubbies. And yeah. that's small liquor, too. So. Mm-hmm. Old English. There was something called A1. I'm not really familiar with it. I didn't dive too deep. But right around 1960s, 40-ounce beers, baby. Damn. Man, I did not come across that. No, yeah. it's technically not beer because <laughs> right. it's malt liquor. So it's it, it just doesn't have hops in it essentially. Yeah. Okay, you know it's beer without hops, which isn't really beer. But so it's just <clears throat> it's just grains that have been fermented. Yeah, no hops, nothing like that. Yeah, just just no hops. I mean, but still forties, forties. <clears throat> yeah, for yeah. a dollar, son. <laughs> Old English, Cold dude. What, what was the price of a forty back in the day? Then? I don't know. Yeah. Pro- I would say okay, forty cents. Sixty in nineteen sixties. <laughs> 47 cents. We're going to have to look this up in the QC. Definitely. Fun fact, and I might have mentioned this in an episode before. Two for a dollar. First full beer I drank was a 40. Steel Reserve? Of Steel Reserve, Oh, yeah. I think uh, I would have to... Damn. Nasty. Not a good experience, I bet. Me too. Yeah. I don't remember it being terrible, though. I just remember drinking a 40 ounce of uh, Steel Reserve and then eating Chinese food afterwards. I didn't like it. I, I got the it was, chills just from you guys saying that. Terrible. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's just because I innately like beer that it wasn't terrible for. I don't, I don't know. I just don't remember it tasting awful. It's weird. I don't have a strong memory of being like, ugh. But I bet if I had a Steel Reserve now... Which the last time I did was when we played Edward Forty Hands a f- number of years ago. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I didn't remember it being like gross then either. I might have to get a forty of Steel Reserve and revisit that. We'll do, we'll do uh, it tonight. We'll do, do it tonight. <laughs> we'll do Edward Forty Hands live on, oh, the, on the podcast. We're totally doing that, by the way. That's going to be our next history beer episode. <laughs> no, oh. it's not going to be our next history beer <laughs> okay, episode. Fine. It'll be our. It'll be our last call of the history of beer. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe we can make that happen. All right. So if you now, Justin, did no, no, because f- everything else I have to input is has it's like can related. So okay, I want to so, keep with your flow. So we're going into cans right now because yeah. cans are huge, man. Like if you think about the craft beer, I mean, if you think about the beer landscape in general, it is dominated by cans. Oh yeah. If you go into your alcohol store and you look to buy beer. Chances are, majority of them are going to be in cans right now. And it's even more so, like, it seems like canning production now with craft beer is is the dominant oh, yeah. force. Yeah. Like, so on today's episode, we are drinking Sierra Nevada Pale Ale out of cans. Which is unusual. Which would have been unusual when it first came out, definitely, and probably still unusual 15 years ago, 10 years ago even. I would say even five yeah, definitely. So when we get into one of our future history of beer episodes, 
we will go deep into cans because they are near and dear to my heart. Mm. Pun intended. So, um, <clears throat> we're going cans now, and we're going back to 1935. Because on January 24th of 1935, the first canned beer is sold in the United States in Richmond, Virginia, and was a collaboration between the American Can Company and the Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company, which led to the shipment of 2,000 cans of Kruger's Finest and Kruger's Cream Ale to Richmond. An overwhelming majority of beer drinkers approved of the cans, and a full production run was ordered. 1935? 1935. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. So So just shortly after Prohibition. Yeah. A couple years after Prohibition. So the American Can Company originally tried to package beer cans in 1909, but was unsuccessful and would have to wait until the end of Prohibition to continue. There were two main problems they had to overcome. The beer reacting with the tin metal that made up the can and making a vessel that could withstand the pressure of carbonated beer. They were successful in creating a can that could hold pressure in a lined can that would protect the beer from the tin. Over the next three months, Kruger's canned beer became so popular, it started to cut into Anheuser-Busch, Pabst, and Schlitz market share, forcing them to get into the can game. And by the end of 1935, over 200 million cans had been sold. Whoa. So in the same year, in the beginning, in January 24th of 1935, you get 2,000 cans, the first 2,000 beer cans. And by the end of that same year, over 200 million cans were sold. That's insane, dude. People loved beer back then. I wonder if, like, that, if, if part of it was kind of the novelty, the idea of drinking beer out of a can... And, like, something new kind of pushed some of those consumers a little bit. The packaging format, definitely, you know. Um, but there is there is a bunch but of... But it was advantage. probably easier for transporting. It was probably easier for storage. It was probably, like... Dude, that that's exactly No it. more glass. So there's so aluminum. many advantages to cans. No deposit initially. There was no <laughs> right, deposit. Yeah, yeah. They were easier to stack, more durable, less time to cool down. So oh, right. when you're talking about oh, refrigeration right. yeah, back yeah, yeah. in the day, prevention of light damage because in bottles, they're obviously translucent and light can come through and uh, less susceptible to oxygen because it's completely sealed container. It doesn't have a crown cap on it, which right. can over time let oxygen in. And this is and this is kind of in like you, you were talking about at the beginning of the episode where science is starting to come into this. Exactly. Heavier with, yes. With uh, in the craft beer or in the beer industry in general. Yep. yep. Who do you think the first dude was to shotgun a beer once the cans were there? Dude, that's uh, a fucking good Ed- question. Edward Shotgun. <laughs> Edward Shotgun. God damn. So cans would continue to grow in popularity during World War II and even more so in the future. John Cusack. The sure thing. Nineteen eighty something. He shotgunned a beer. Wait. <laughs> Do you think in that's, the movie? In a movie, he did it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sure. Man, we're definitely nineteen eighty three, nineteen eighty something. When the popularity but of shotgunning beers I, happened, I that's feel probably like when it boomed. And I, it's it, got to be earlier, like seventies, maybe. I would say like there was dudes doing it in like the seventies. Yeah. I wouldn't 60, be surprised 60. if it was a movie or something like that that actually made it popular, made it super popular. But people know? were probably doing it beforehand because exactly. obviously the guy in the movie 
found out from something else. You oh, know? definitely, definitely. <laughs> I bet if we dive deep, there would be people like, "Yo, I, I, I was shotgunning beers in the seventies." You know, <laughs> I was shotgunning beers in nineteen thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Oh beers. We used to get our keys, our car keys from our automobiles. We'd pop a little hole in the bottom and we'd chuck it as fast as we could. We get super duper drunk. We'd go home. Make love to our old ladies. But they weren't old ladies at the time, though. I, yeah. <laughs> My favorite part of that whole thing is the fact that James was saying that the characters in the movie saw it from somewhere else and started doing it. Oh, yeah, definitely. It had nothing to do with the writers sort of narrating their entire life and predetermining their Sure, actions. whatever. You know what I mean. God damn it. <laughs> All right, so I'm okay. in 1954. You got anything between 35 and 54 here? Uh, 35, uh, Schlitz introduced, aside from that, um, the cream ale, uh, not not to be confused with Jenny Creams. Yeah, Kruger's cream ale. Kruger's cream ale. Yeah. Uh, Schlitz introduced a cone top Ooh. can in 1935. Um, yeah, which that cone top can... Um, what does that look like? It almost looks like... looks like a WD-40 can. That's what it looks like to me. Uh, well, in WW2... <laughs> when when in WW2 in 1945? Yeah. They no. were... Something like that. 90, 40, yeah, 45. 45. We'll say 45. It's 45. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> this they, is history of beer, not history of World War II. Well, they gave their dudes Guinness for Christmas dinner. Did they? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That was very nice. In World War II. I don't know when in World War II, but in World War II, they were given a pint of Guinness for Christmas dinner. 1954. Schlitz makes the first 16-ounce can. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Pounders, baby. Pounders. I didn't realize that the 16-ounce can went back that far. And it's weird because eventually when cans become popular, the 12-ounce format is like king. Sure, for sure. But in the craft beer world today, 16. 16, man. Yeah. I just and, had a conversation the other day about Yeti. Uh, Yeti fucking koozies not having a little f- screw on top for their 16 pounders because pounders is how I drink them. I drink them all with 16s. <laughs> I don't get it. I, you know what? We'll get into this in our future craft beer episodes because I've got a lot of opinions on different can formats, which seems super nerdy. But I think that each format is good for certain types of beer. For sure. I would agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, But I bet Schlitz's were fucking great in 16-ounce cans, though. Pounding those bad babies. Mm, Shotgun them, perhaps? (laughs) (laughs) 1960. So, 1958. Oh, okay. Hawaii Brewing makes the first aluminum beer can. You were going to tell me somebody else, I thought it was Coors. Dude, I don't know. For my information, I got 1958 Hawaii Brewing. Makes or maybe, the first maybe in can. 1960, Coors started to introduce the aluminum beer can. Maybe it wasn't the first. Yeah. So the, who was it? Hawaii Brewing. Hawaii Brewing. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Now, we'll definitely check into that in the QC. But I'm pretty sure Hawaii... Because I, 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 at the time when I was looking all this stuff up... There, I had more information on why Hawaii was the first one to do it, but I didn't leave that in my notes for some reason. But we're pushing forward. Into what time? N- Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the cost of a six-pack was under $2. See, that's <laughs> good, 
but I feel like now now it's cheaper, cheaper compared to inflation with inflation yeah probably. which is gnarly wait really I looked up inflation yeah. throughout the years of beer prices just randomly like a few weeks ago and <laughs> I think in the 70s it was ridiculously expensive for beer hmm. for some reason I will based on inflation I will definitely look up beer beer prices and, by inflation and currently beers cheaper than it ever has been i would not be surprised at yeah, all yeah, I could because that. you can still get you can mass, they mass produce it so efficiently 30 now. Pack of oh yeah kenny lipton's for fucking dude i got them less like, like 50, 50 yeah like less than 50 cents a can when i was like, like 20 that. a 30 rack of pbr was 9.99 for a 30 rack yeah. at apple country market in clinton Holla. dude that is that's wild 9.99 wild and we bought 21 30 racks that weekend that's even more wild. That's <laughs> yes, that's crazy. yes, it is. <laughs> so, in 1963, a giant innovation in can technology is invented, and that is the push-in pull-back pull tab. So, is that what what this is? That's the, what this is that we're drinking. The, the before they had the pull tab, they the, just pulled the whole thing off. The whole right? thing off, exactly. Right, right. I so remember you, finding you had, those. you had this piece in your hand. And you had to fucking throw it away, chuck it on the ground. But now you just you push it in, you pull it back, and it's all in one piece, and you can drink your beer out of the can. Yeah. So this is 1963 technology. I mean, the idea, the initial idea. They looked a little bit different back then. A couple things we need to reinvent: the pop top. You and think that the, needs to be reinvented? Why not? Just mine as well. Just make freshen it up, make some money, and the toilet. What's up with the toilet? It's like gravity fed and shit. I don't know. It's fucking weird. Well, the the so you can act. It's too they, simple. They make lids for cans where you can pull off the whole top. They also there, there's a bunch of innovations in lid technology that have come about over the past x amount of years. You just fall off. But it's it it becomes a question of like practicality and efficiency, you know, all all that price. Kind of stuff. Is it worth the money? And, and to be, I mean, human <laughs> waste is used as gravity. I mean, it's part of that's how we expel it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so uh, just so, too simple. I mean, I feel like you can make it a little more crazy and be like, "Wow, dude, there no toilets are crazy." I feel like eh. no, no, not the one in your home or yeah. my home. I'm saying like if you go to like Elon Musk's house or the Taj Mahal or something. Yeah, toilet technology has got to be sick. It's got to be maybe. I'm gonna QC it. You know, what? I'm gonna do some QC Make some toilet notes. stuff <laughs> just for this episode. Just for this episode. All right, sorry. History of beers, history of toilets. I mean, we've we've got a whole new lane going Pink on right series. now. Okay, so. The last bit that I have on cans is in 1969. It's a good, good year. Good year, man. <laughs> and that is canned beer outsells bottled beer for the first time. Damn. And since then, it's been doing it, right? Yes. It's been crushing? Yep. So basically, cans invented in 1935, and 34 years later, they're the dominant the dominant packaging format at that point. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to move into the final portion of our history part of this podcast. And that's the roots of craft beer. So the we're going star baby to 1942 in the Brewers Association of America, 
then known as the Small Brewers Committee, forms. This is important because then it will go on to become a large organization that um, you know craft breweries are a big part of. Now, moving to 1963, I know it's a pretty big jump, but we're talking about the roots of craft beer. And at the time, as we were talking about big beer, they were making all the moves. They were the dominant force. So craft beer was kind of, it didn't even exist. People didn't know what craft beer was in the 40s and 60s, barely, right? Why, Seth? Why? Why did they not know about it? Yeah. Because nobody told them about it. And because homebrewing wasn't legal then. That is also correct. And we are going to get to that right now. We will. Because homebrewing beer is made legal in the United Kingdom in 1963. However, it wouldn't be made legal in the United States until 1978. However, it was also made legal in Australia in 1972. So Great Britain and Australia, a little bit ahead of the curve. So there's another momentous occasion that happened in 1963. And that was a man named Greg Tardiff, who was born, okay? (laughs) And he would go on to become a home brewer. Okay. Which would later teach me how to homebrew, which would lead me into my career in the brewing industry. Thus, the interest in beer, thus this podcast on the history of beer. Exactly. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Drink to Greg. Yes. So it all uh, goes down to Mr. Easy. Mr. Easy. My father. That's the second cheers I think he's got on this podcast. <sighs> More to come. Yes. All right. So. Continuing on in the history timeline, we're in 1965. Now, this has a little bit to do with big beer and craft beer, and that is the Haffenreffer Brewery in Boston, Boston, Massachusetts, closes, which leaves Massachusetts without a brewery for the first time in 300 years. What? Damn. Massachusetts had no brewery? Yeah. Dude, come on. Yes, exactly. Like, like someone's like, I wonder what we can do for a business. Well, you know what? No one's making beer in this state. <laughs> exactly, dude. Jesus Christ. That. What a wide open fucking channel. Yeah, and we'll get to how many breweries there are in Massachusetts in a future episode. Yeah. Because there are a shitload. Fuck yeah. But in 1965, there were none. Wow. Which is insane. So... God damn it. A couple years later, we get back to this Joseph Awades guy yep. who I talked about earlier, who is the father of light beer. Now, this is the reason why I'm very surprised I've never heard of this guy, because he became a consultant. And what he did was help launch Anchor Brewing in California. Oh, fuck yeah. And he would also go on to launch, help launch Boston Beer Company. Which is Sam Adams. Dude, this guy's a legend. And he would help Boston Beer develop Sam Adams' Boston Lager. Wow. Dude, this guy is fucking... He's the king, man. So not only was he a major factor in the rise of big beer by creating the first light beer ever, he was also a major factor in craft beer by launching Anchor, who is a a major or was a major player at the time. And Sam Adams, who is a current major player in the craft beer world. How'd he die? 
Um, he may still be alive. How old? How, when was light beer invented? 1940. 1967. 67. Well, I mean, um, with Miller Light, it made it popular, right? So he in, he invented it with Rheingold Breweries in 67, and then Miller made it popular in okay. 1973. Could be old as fuck. Yeah, if he's still alive. But I will check to see if he is still alive or not. So that's crazy. That is super crazy, dude. Because fucking staple right there. Yeah, and because most of like the major players in the craft beer scene, like I know, imagine being that guy. Yeah, I invented light beer. Oh yeah, and I started Anchor and helped with fucking Sam Adams. Yeah, and so <clears throat> Joseph Oades died unfortunately, um, December sixteenth, two thousand five. Okay, all right, so sixteen years ago, not before inventing all the beers. Yeah, so that guy pretty wild what a fucking g man i know but if you think about it like he does light beer right which is miller and then budweiser goes on to do bud light which is the biggest light beer in the world yeah you know and bud light probably wouldn't exist if he didn't do miller light first you know because ab had to have an answer if miller light is you know chomping at their heels right wild so now we a fucking shrine of that guy somewhere (laughs) there probably is now we move on to 1971 which oregon state university develops the cascade hop now this is the predominant hop in sierra nevada pale ale it's also known for its grapefruit flavor and it goes on to become at least at one point and i'll have to check if it still is today the most used hop in the craft beer industry and i mean cascade is probably one of the first hops that i used same homebrewing you know it's widely available it's one of the cheaper hops because it's so widely available it's got that classic grapefruit flavor to it um my father has Cascade plants at his house and one time made a very, very oh delicious. <laughs> I still think about that beer. Dude, I don't know what it was, but this <clears throat> one brew he had with his fresh hop Cascade had the greatest. It must have been a good crop year for him or something because that grapefruit flavor was popping like crazy, man. Yeah. Hmm. Well yeah. before grapefruit sculpin and all that <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, grapefruit flavored beers, that's a whole different story. But you can get plenty of great grapefruit flavor from hops themselves. Absolutely. Um, And that's thanks to Oregon State University for developing the Cascade hop, which probably also, which spawned a bunch of other hops of similar nature, which- Cross-pollination of other with Cascade in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which leads to a lot of the flavors that you get in modern IPAs. For sure. Specifically like West Coast IPAs, right? Specifically West Coast IPAs, yeah. I mean, a lot of, you do get some utilization of that in New England IPAs, but um, not quite, Cascade isn't quite as popular in that style. And now we're moving on to 1976, which sees the formation of New Albion Brewing, 
which was founded in Sonoma, California by John McAuliffe and became the first microbrewery in the United States after Prohibition. Wait, wait, wait. <clears throat> what? <laughs> microbrewery. First, first microbrewery. microbrewery in the United States after So by that definition, they're making... Like small time, like very very small popular brewery. Exactly. Okay. Now, so New Albion would go on to close in 1982. However, it was a big inspiration for the birth of other U.S. microbreweries, very specifically Sierra Nevada. Okay. And a handful of other breweries that are in the California area, which is huge for the craft brewing scene. Right. So I remember reading uh, Ken Grossman, who is the founder of Sierra Nevada. I read his book or one of his books, and he. I remember him specifically mentioning being inspired by New Albion Brewing. And he even ended up doing a collaboration with John McAuliffe, I want to say sometime in the early 2000s, and they did a throwback recipe to one of New Albion's barley wines. Oh, cool. Which is pretty cool. And yeah. if I had known about that at the time, probably would have sought it <laughs> out, but um, I did not. I wonder if there's any <clears throat> like remaining beers like that being sold on eBay or something. I mean, like yeah, bar- barley, wine, barley wine's got a good age on it, too. Oh, yeah. You know? um, so over the next... Obviously, we're in 1976 now in the scheme of the start of craft brewing. And pretty much leading up until 1983, there's a, a, a handful of very key things in the craft beer movement that happen. Now, in 1977, I don't know if you guys have heard of this guy, but I've definitely heard of this guy. His name's Michael Jackson. Never heard of him. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You know him. You know him. He's the guy, you know, if you're in the mirror and you go, is he the man? He's El Hihi. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't sell. Don't say. <laughs> He's El Hihi, man. El Hihi. Yeah, right. If you say Chamon three times in the mirror, El Hihi will come. <laughs> Chamon. Chamon. <laughs> Don't say it. Don't I say it. I'm not. I don't want El Hee to come. <laughs> <laughs> not Matt Michael He'll Jackson. He'll grab kids, man. <laughs> so Michael James Jackson is an English writer, and he published The World Guide to Beer in 1977, and it became an international bestseller, educating the world on different beer styles. His books have sold over 3 million copies worldwide, have been translated into several languages, and he's credited with popularizing the idea of beer styles. So, like I said earlier, people didn't know about craft beer, and Michael Jackson was one of the first major people to tell the world about craft beer and all the different styles that exist, from your parallels to your barley wines, to your Belgian breweries, to your German breweries, all this stuff was compiled by Michael Jackson and given to the people. And that's a name that I've heard when I first started getting into home brewing and getting into craft brewing, you hear guys mention the writings of Michael Jackson. He actually had a popular BBC television show as well as 
um, regular columns in beer-related magazines and the like. And he died at age 65 in 2007 after suffering from Parkinson's for 10 years. Yikes. Damn. But he leaves behind a pretty prolific legacy as letting the people know about all these different beer styles, which is really cool, especially in the days before the internet, you know? Right, right. You got to put that into perspective. It's like now we can just look up what are beer styles? What are the BJCP guidelines? Yeah. Like, And then you can see every known beer st- or every popularly known beer style. It must have been so existence. hard to get information before the internet. Oh, yeah. Going to the library. Doing like decimal finding, system. Just mm-hmm. even finding books that like aren't in the library. Or like in stores, like people are like, oh yeah, there's a guy in this area who's been like doing a lot of shit about beer. Go fly, go fly out to him and see if you can talk to him about beer, you know? <laughs> Yo, no yeah, one has dude. blogs, no one has fucking research studies posted online or books available for, through digital format, you know? It's like, fuck. Yeah. I think about all, so throughout all these history of beers, we've highlighted multiple styles over hundreds of years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all before the internet. All before thousands the internet, of years. Thousands, I mean, Jesus Christ. Years, yeah. Really. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. And I was able to look up all this information on the internet, you know, and also just from me studying beer. Like when I first got into homebrewing and craft beer, one of the first things that I did was what are all the beer styles, you know? Right. Which is cra- It's weird because at the time that I was getting into home brewing there were so many styles that were being produced or not being produced and you were like all right well i can make them because i can look up what they are i can look up recipes i can see what the traditions and histories of them are all that kind of stuff dude i remember um being at a homebrew store and talking to a guy and he was like oh yeah clone recipes are a thing Clones. i'm like what do you mean clone recipes? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, dude, just look on the internet. And I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. That's the very first thing I ever did was make a clone of Blue Moon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very first fucking recipe I ever did was like, I want to clone Blue Moon. <laughs> I remember when I first started getting into craft beer, like I would just ignorantly walk into a store and have no real idea, like when it said barley wine or mm-hmm. India pale ale or fucking Hefeweizen, like, no idea what any of that shit meant. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was really just kind of buying like, oh, that's, I've never had that. That's new. I'm going to drink that. Yep. Yep. But that's, yeah, man, the more you understand the styles and where they came from and like the notes that it brings and like even just discerning between like a lager and an ale. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the like the most basic of the basics. Right, yeah. yeah. And like you said, we were getting into craft beer right around the same time and it seemed like there was such more an easily diverse selection of beer available. Whereas now when you go into the store, you can get a bunch of different styles, but really for the most part, there's only, I mean, IPAs are the dominant style. And then there's a couple other styles after that. And then like maybe 10% of your store are all the other styles, you know? Yeah. Dude, I have a hard time finding uh, a black IPA anywhere. I have a hard time finding um, any kind of Belgian styles oh, that, that Belgian are not styles like are hard. You used to be able to get those pretty easily, way easy. German styles, dude. I challenge box and fucking- I challenge anybody right now to just go to the store and buy a stout, just a stout, not 
a oatmeal milk stout, stout, not an oatmeal stout, not a pastry chocolate stout, s'more stout, not a chocolate <laughs> s'more stout, just a straight up stout, dude. It is insane. You know what I would get to? I would. You know what? I'd probably just. I'd probably. Uh, oh man, you'd probably find it in the British section of your uh, local packy store, maybe. I mean, you could get a Guinness, obviously. No, whatever. no, no. Like a, like a, like, like a Fuller's Stout, or no. Well, that's more of like a Porter. Fuller's London Porter is yeah. that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Or the, uh, what is it? The the Old English Brown. I don't know. Never mind. Yeah, I mean, no, but yeah, just, you really yeah, can't, just, especially like craft beer. Like just going and getting it's whatever's like, popular at the time. They're yeah. just gonna push that shit so they survive. I mean, in uh, you, you kind of have to. I mean, yeah. Um, if everyone likes fucking New England's, that's what we're pushing yep. until the fucking shit dies. You ride waves, oh, man, man. I can't wait till New England IPAs die. Oh <laughs> uh, man, we've been talking about like what's going to be the next big style after New England's, and there's been some styles that have caught on after New England's, but the wave's still there. It's still there, man, and it's crazy. And there's like hazy sours seem to be. The thing and lactose sours. Oh are, yeah, those are, are definitely like a, one of the styles that are hanging around, but they're still not nearly as big as New England or hazy IPAs. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Um, and and there's some great hazy IPAs out there. I drink them, you know, but it's it's just slightly disappointing that there's so many on the shelves and that there could be so many other great styles. But this is a conversation for a future history of beer episode. When we're we get there. to that point, yeah. uh, we're, we're real close. So now we're on to 1978. And this is when President Carter in the United States legalizes homebrewing beer. And promptly after, Charlie Papazian founds the American Homebrewers Association in Boulder, Colorado, which I am a member of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Damn, in Boulder too. What a good Damn. Yeah. Um so in so Charlie Papazian, he is another gigantic factor in home brewing and as well as craft brewing because so many craft brewers started out as home brewers. And Charlie wrote a book in 1984 called The Complete Joy of Home Brewing which I've read and which plenty of other people that are interested in homebrewing have read. Um, it's, it's a great book and he's, uh, an interesting, colorful writer, you know, so it's not like you're learning about beer in kind of a fun way. And he gives you a bunch of examples of his homebrew recipes along the way. And this guy has been doing it forever. He's still, he's still alive. He's still going around, um, you know, talking about brewing and homebrewing. And this dude has brewed every style from the most obscure to the most popular and knows so much about all there is to do with homebrewing. And at the same time is he comes up with recipes that are crazy that don't make any sense. And then also will make recipes that are very like true to style, which is very, which captures the spirit of homebrewing, right? Because there is this thing in homebrewing where you want to replicate a style perfectly. Like I want to make the perfect half of Eisen, right? Absolutely. But then there's also that element of 
which where you get all your wild. I want a peanut butter hefeweizen. Exactly. And, and cheese gravy. And, and how do I do that? You know, like who knows? And, and sometimes those beers come out awful. And sometimes those beers come out fucking fantastic. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, Charlie Papazian has been able to really get across to this wide brewing audience to have fun. And he, he's got his whole saying, which is his brand, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. He reminds me of like a Bob Ross of, of beer. Like, dude, that's, I'm going to rack this happy little stout here. <laughs> like, I don't know a, what it is. That's but. a good point. Yeah, yeah. Charlie, Pepe, like if you look at pictures of him too, he just looks like a fun, jolly guy as well. Like... <laughs> Um, he, he's awesome. You know, I, I obviously read his book. I'm a member of the American Homebrewers Association and, uh, the publication for the AHA is Zymergy Magazine, which if you're a member of the Homebrewers Association, you can read online and they also send you the magazine in paper format. I still get it. I still read it. And it has given me a wealth of knowledge of a bunch of different beer styles, techniques, science behind beer, new gadgets, all this kind of stuff. Um, if just by reading that magazine, it can give you an education in the world of beer. And this all goes back to Charlie Papazian forming the Homebrewers Association in 1978, right after it's legalized in America, which is crazy on his part, man. Super forward thinking. Goddamn. It's crazy to think that it was illegal before then to brew homebrew. Oh, but yeah. But you can go and buy it. But wait, I mean, weren't people do? I mean, people were brewing like wine and shit in their house, right? Like even well before pro- prohibition. So, yeah, but it wasn't was, legal it wasn't technically, illegal. right? Oh, really? So now like you could buy the ingredients- but there weren't real. There wasn't really an avenue, and even when homebrewing was made legal, it was still, you yeah, you could go to places that had homebrewing supplies, but it's not like it is today. Today, it's mostly based on the internet. But sure, twenty years ago, until up until the last couple of years, you were going to your LHBS, your local homebrew store, and browsing through all your different malts, malt extracts, equipment, hops, yeasts, all this stuff. Um which so many people have done who are now homebrewers and craft brewers. Mm. So, we go to 1979 and Boulder Beer Company is founded by David Hummer, oh, Randolph yeah. Ware, and Alvin Nelson and is the first microbrewery in Colorado. Boulder Beer? Boulder Beer was the first microbrewery oh, in man. Colorado. Hell yeah. 1979. And that's the same year that Sierra Nevada is founded, which is crazy. So they're some of the first couple of microbreweries in the country. Did you go to Boulder when you were in Colorado visiting Q? I didn't. Oh, man. That's Did a you? great place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Got some shake there. They didn't have any Mojo Rising. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Damn, so Yeah, bad. Boulder, that that was another um, staple place. I can't I, believe they're that that old. I Damn. know. They were another microbrewery that when I was first getting into craft beer, how many years ago now? Is it like 12, 13 years, something like that? I mean, before you were 21, that's for sure. But barely, just barely before. Sure. You know. Um, it's the only way. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, Boulder. Boulder lost their, they stopped distribution, right? Recently? So 
in doing research for this episode, when I saw this fact that Boulder started in 1979, I looked them up because I'd heard that their distribution stopped and that they sold their old pub location and they were basically going to focus on um, contract brewing for their stuff. Oh, okay. And I think... And from what I saw on their website, they're actually going to be opening up a new location and they had all new branding for all their old beers and stuff. Everything was going to be in cans. So I don't know if we're going to start seeing Boulder back on the shelves. I wish. But, I, I hopefully. Yeah. I mean, they had, they had some pretty good classic recipes for modern craft beer styles. So a year later in 1980, there are eight craft breweries in the United States. Two years after that, there are 20 breweries that attend the Great American Beer Festival, which is founded by Charlie Papazian. Now, damn, that must have been a crazy event. Dude, 20 breweries serving 35 beers total. Now, if any of our listeners, and if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this deep into it, you've probably been to a beer festival, all right? Yeah. yeah. We've been to local beer competitions with more fucking. Booths. Exactly. Homebrew booths. Yes. Random dudes just in the 10 square miles. Yeah. But if you go to a craft beer festival now, <laughs> there's way more than 20 breweries and a hell of a lot more than 35 beers being Fuck served. Yeah. Bring Each your pretzel one. necklaces, man. Yeah. Yes. And you're walking out there fucking drunk. Dude, mm-hmm. I've never been to a beer fest where I wasn't completely obliterated by the end. Yeah. Not intentionally either. My no. friend puked inside a barrel inside the place because he was so cocked. And I was like, all right, hurry up, puke, so we can get in line and get some more beers. And he was like, okay, I'm going. You're getting what? Like a two, two ounce, ounce samples? Pour, and yeah. you're just trying to like, you want to taste some good stuff. You want to taste everything. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. And but dude, shit, after like 40 lines. It adds up. You're dude. taking shots, dude. And some of those beers are stiff. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, you want to try a chocolate stout? It's only 16% alcohol. You're like, holy shit. <laughs> you're basically just taking shots of brandy all night. Oh man. Yeah. But that must have been, uh, if I had a time machine, man, to go back to that that first o- Great OG American 20? Beer Festival. Dude, that's like OzFest 98 or something. That's oh, like. Yeah. I wonder if I can find the, beer, the brewery list for that that first Great American Beer Do you festival. think like like Anheuser-Busch try to like hide themselves in there and be like, oh, try Bud Light? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they do now with the oh, craft like, breweries they own. Yeah, all the breweries they own. He's like, yeah. motherfucker, I've had this beer. Oh, Blue Moon's here. They, they own like Red it. Hook and like Goose, Goose Island. They own they everything, they own, they own, bro. They own a, they own a handful shit of yeah. craft breweries now. Yeah. Okay. So we're in 1982. Bam. Now we're in 1983. And there are a total of 51 brewing groups operating 80 breweries in the United States. That's so small. Think about that, dude. There's In the U.S., 80. In the U.S., there's 80 breweries. Compared to now, there's probably, what, 7,000? Yeah. We're going to get to that, and it's fucking crazy. So in 1983... These 80 breweries, the top six control 92% of U.S. beer production. 92%. So that, the rest of them share that 8%. Exactly. Just to get a little just get a little coin. Dude, six breweries control 92% of U.S. beer production. Is Sierra number one? No, Anheuser-Busch. No, no, no. This is br- all breweries. This oh, isn't craft. Yeah. This is all breweries. <clears throat> oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Coors, Miller, Anheuser Busch. Yep. That's all I know for beers. And I think it's Pabst Yingling? and Schlitz. No, not Yingling. Yeah, I, I will look this up in the QC, but I'm fairly positive it's Anheuser Busch, Coors, Miller, Pabst, Schlitz, and there's one more I can't think of. <laughs> Red Dog. Red Tick. Red Tick Berry. Yes. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> Needs more dog. Yeah, and that is where our timeline concludes for the roots of craft beer, because you can see, as we just outlined, that craft beer is just, there's all these just pieces in, there's all these pieces in place to plant the seeds, and big beer is at its height in the, 1983. The bud is starting to blossom. Yep. And become a full rose of what seems to be the success of all craft breweries. <laughs> Develop. The spring thaw just started to thaw. To blossom into summer. I wish everybody could just have seen James's <laughs> hand movements because that really made that. I'm portion. getting there, dude. I'm at three, three to four beers deep. Feel it. So, do you guys have anything else about? Welcome, welcome, welcome. There's an Oz podcast episode. <laughs> There's going to be so much editing in this episode. Oh, good luck. It's not even you want to just start over and do the whole thing yeah. again? Let's let's start over. I want to talk about toilets. Oh my god, dude, poopy. <laughs> we're definitely not talking about toilets. I think we're good on this episode, right? No, no, guys? I'm good. Yeah, I got yeah, nothing else for yeah. sure. I'm excited for the next episode, though. The next couple episodes are going to be oh, huge man. because. Yeah nostalgia i mean where we're living we're gonna live one we're gonna be alive exactly alive we'll have been mostly alive yeah i mean we yeah all of us were born after 1983 so we'll be alive we'll be living in our dad's dicks (laughs) you know (laughs) yep and then being born and we'll be being born and then eventually we will consume beer and we'll get into the craft beer stuff that is where I have a lot of knowledge off the top of my head, but it will still be fun to go and see what other people have talked about the craft beer industry and how it all started. And then we can obviously share our experiences even more of how we got into it and me being in the industry and all that fun stuff. Cool. I'm excited. Yeah. Yes. All right. All right, guys. That's it. Yeah, we're, yeah. Listen to this song about nothing. Huh? Yeah. I'm gonna drink this beer and then drink another beer and then drink five more beers and then shotgun beer. Celebrations? You guys drinking celebrations? Delicious. Thank God home fucking brewing spurred off a movement of delicious beers. I know. We were talking about Sierra Nevada in this episode, and now you guys are finishing the episode with some... They're so good. Delicious Sierra Nevada. So much flavor. Imagine if we were stuck with legally light lagers this whole time. I know. Which is... nothing else. I'm not drinking a light lager. I'm drinking a banquet beer right now. Coors Banquet. Coors Banquet, because we're badass. And because of the honor of uh, 
adult uh <laughs> that guy adolf kors the third or whatever who mm. got kidnapped and killed for ransom cheers to him yeah <laughs> r.i.p son here i'll pour some out on your rug to <laughs> well that actually leads me into my first bit of qc for the episode all right so the ransom for adolf kors was five hundred thousand dollars in 1960 do you guys know what that is in today's dollars? 1960? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the equivalent of like, I don't know, maybe 100 million? No. I'm going to say... Wait, 1960? Yeah. 1960. Uh, half a mil in 1960. I would say in 1.2. Dollars? No, I'd say maybe 50 million. 50 For- million? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I would say like a trillion dollars. Is, yeah, a, no. is, a, is a graggle a number? Is a graggle a number? I'd say graggle dollars. Oh, uh, dude, no. You're not even close to Oh, really? All it, right. It's, it's like close to four and a half million. Okay. <laughs> 1960, right? Dude. I would say like a hundred. Holy crap. hundred bajillion dollars. 500,000, it was 50 million today? Oh, We'd boy. be fucked. Yeah. A Big Mac would be like fucking $900. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've got another. Um, we talked some money in this episode, so I'm I'm talking inflation for the next couple pieces of QC. So Philip Morris bought Miller for two hundred and forty three million in nineteen seventy three. Holy! You want to take shit. a stab at how much that is? That's in one point two billion at least. <laughs> oh, you're fucking close, dude. One point two six billion. One point four three billion. Damn. Yeah. That's a fucking good that's, sell right there. Uh, that is a great sell. Yeah, that's wild. I'd fucking sell. Fuck yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, That's right? stupid money. Yeah. And then they came out with, like, Miller Lite and fucking, you know. All right. So, the next piece is we were talking about how much a 40 ounce costs back in the day. Cause we were talking about yeah, yeah. the invention yeah. of 40 ounces and I fucking for the life of me could not find the price of a 40 ounce. Yeah. It's maybe it's out there somewhere you can find it, but there was way more information about how much does a six pack cost back in the day. Okay. And we kind of talked about that a little bit in the episode as well. So I, I took a few snapshots throughout time to kind of show you how the price of a six pack changed and then also what its uh, inflation price would be okay. like so what it would be like in today's dollars. So in 1954 it was a dollar 63 for a six pack which equates to $11.67 today. Pretty much pretty close. So, I mean actually it's in you you going to see. So um, in 1971, it was two dollars and five cents, which is the equivalent to almost ten dollars. 1983, it was four dollars and six cents, which is equivalent to eight dollars and seventy cents. So you can see the price mm, of beer is actually okay. coming down yeah. over time. So in 1999, it's six dollars and twelve cents, and that's eight dollars and fifty cents. And then in the the most recent answer I could find was 2014. I was reading an article that was written in 2018, and that was $8.61, and it's around $8.88. Okay. So it kind of le- leveled <clears throat> off once it hit the 80s, like that it's approximately 
the average price of a six pack is a little over eight dollars. When I was talking to guys at work, um, some of the old timers were like in their sixties, were saying like, "Oh, in the eighties, early late seventies, early eighties, we go to the bar, you can get a shot and a beer for a dollar." So yeah, yeah. Damn, beer and a shot, one dollar. That's sick. I'm like, that's all I would need is three dollars, and I can get drunk. <laughs> and they started crying. I'm like, yeah. I was like, that's pretty sick. Dude, one of the things that I did when I was trying to find the price of a 40 back in the day, I came across this blog where this guy did all this research to find the cheapest 40-ounce beer. Really? Like, he went to all these different, like, local like grocery store stores? and packies and all that stuff <clears throat> and was comparing the prices of all the different brands of 40 ounces to find... And also the alcohol percentage. He was basically trying to find the best bang for your buck. Right. And dude, 40 ounces are cheap. Super mm. fucking. It's cheaper than buying a six pack. Definitely. Oh, yeah. For sure. Which is, I, I would love to see if somebody had that data. Like what a 40 ounce was back in the day and then what it is compared to today. Like insane, dude. It, and, like a little over a dollar for like the cheapest fucking 40 yeah. ounce. Today, like today's Damn, really? dollars. I remember in high school, in a little bit of college, we were getting forties for like two fifty, I think. But I remember now looking at them, and they're in like the three to four dollar range. Yeah, like a granted, it's Bud Light, but like a forty exactly. Bud that's Light a, was like four twenty nine, four fifty. Yeah. yeah. But I remember the twos. Remember them being in the twos. I think like Colt forty five was like one ninety nine. Damn, you know? <laughs> it's so wild. crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to have to buy 40s for my brother when he was like 19, 20 and give me fucking change. I would look like a, I would, I'd be like, I'm not giving them change to buy 40s. I'm like, I'll put that change in that jar and I'll go buy them for right, you. Right. I'm not going to look like a homeless man. <laughs> fucking paying him in nickels for fucking three forties. Sorry. So we were also talking about shotgunning beers and when the hell did that start? Yeah. Dude, I could not find a straight answer at all. I read some forums on Reddit about guys saying they were doing them in the 70s. That's the closest that I came to, basically, was that there were some forums where people were talking about them doing in the 70s, maybe the 60s, somewhere in that neighborhood. There was some like, uh, then people were fucking being assholes and being like, oh, Miss Annie Shotgun, Shotgun to Beer in 1869. It's like, dude, come on. I need some literature on that. Yeah, yeah. And there's all sorts of smart-ass answers. But there was a handful of people, old guys, saying, like, oh, we did this back in the Can't day. Can't shotgun a beer until the can was invented, right? Yeah. So No, exactly. That's no, the right, thing. Yeah. Unless they were, unless it somehow existed in some other format, which you're not shotgunning bottles, dude. Fuck and there's, no. like, especially back in the day, maybe you could make some weird device now that would perfectly, like... They put like a straw, a hay straw needle thing through the. Yeah. <laughs> I don't no, know. I don't no, see no. it happening. No, it's not fucking happening. Um, and as you know, we we talked about cans in this episode and they, you know, <laughs> like they weren't invented before this time period. Right. So it would have had to have been sometime after the invention of the can, obviously. Um, but uh, they did mention that John Cusack movie where he shotgunned a beer called the sure thing the sure thing yeah and that was in the mid 80s and that probably popularized it right now for sure yeah yeah Yeah. so we there was a small debate on what was the first 
company to come out with the aluminum can. And it was indeed the Hawaii Brewing. Hawaii Brewing. Yes, as I said in the episode. Another thing that we were talking about was the history of the Great American Beer Festival. So we were talking about that there were only 20 breweries that attended in 1982, and there was only 35 beers, different beers, Hmm. at the Great American Beer Festival. So I just wanted to give you guys, I don't want to get into Great American Beer Festival too deep, because that's probably going to, we'll probably touch on that in a future episode. But roughly from the early 2000s to around 2011, there were about three to 400 breweries that would attend. Oof. So the, obviously comparing to when it started in the 80s. But once we hit 2017 to today, well, approximately, Five years. yeah, over 2,000 breweries Whoa. attend. Jesus Christ, that's it blew up. Sh- oh yeah, it sh- and that's when you know, we'll get into this in in the future episode. But that's when your number of breweries in America went through the fucking roof. And the last piece I have is the six breweries that controlled the market when we left off. I named off five, and I couldn't get the last one. And I was wrong about one of those five. Unpex? Unpex? <laughs> <laughs> so the six were Anheuser-Busch, Coors, and I don't know how to pronounce this one, Heilemann? Heilemann. Heilemann or Heilemann, H-E-I-L-E-M-A-N. <clears throat> Never heard of them. I don't know. Miller, Pabst, and Stroh. Hmm. The one that I'd mentioned before was Schlitz. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but that was probably because I'd never heard of Heilemann and it didn't stick in my head. And that's all I have for the QC for this episode. All right. This was an awesome, very knowledgeable, entertaining episode. If you like this episode, post it in the reviews and comments. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And rate, review, and subscribe to this motherfucking podcast space. Thanks for watching, guys. And if you haven't already, go and listen to the other History of Beer episodes. Yeah, so you don't get lost. Especially that Prohibition episode. You guys are going to love that one. Just start with this one and go back in time. Listen to all of them. Yeah. You can go back yes. to the future. Exactly. Or the future. I don't know, man. You can figure it out yourself. But listen to what? Every 10. Every 10. All Thanks right. for listening, guys. Bye. Sausage candles.